This is the final week in our series we're calling Basics. Uh, and last week what we talked about was humanity, just us, and how we relate to God, and how um, God has given us this wonderful gift that we call free will. He's given us the gift to choose, the gift to follow him, to choose his will, or the gift to not follow him and, and do our own thing. And um, kind of the way we uh, lined this up last week, and I want to l- kind of recover some ground that we looked at last week so that we can build off of it today. Uh, so this is kind of part two, I guess, a little bit to last week. Um, last week we looked at the fact that God created us, Okay, He made us. That's not a big shocker uh, as a Christian. If you know anything about faith, we believe God is the maker of all things. The entire universe, his idea. Secondly, since God created us, that means he owns us. Creator equals owner. That means he has the right to tell us how to live, what to do with our lives, because he made us. We belong to him. That whatever road or path he's laid out for us, that is the road that we should follow. He can tell us what we can do and what we can't do. And then finally, we said that every single choice we make, whether we choose to follow him or not, every choice we make is either a step towards him or away from him. It's either a step closer to being the person that he's made us to be and having the relationship that he wants with, or a a, a step to kind of go our own direction and go farther and farther away. Now, last week, I really kind of hit hard on the fact that it's up to us to make those right choices. I really hammered on the fact that God has given us the gift to choose, and so therefore we need to use that gift to choose what he has laid out as best for us. But what about when we don't? What about when we don't choose the right thing? Because surely I'm not the only one that feels that some days I make more wrong choices than right choices. Some days I wake up and it's like, boy, I just really knocked it out of the park today. I got up, I prayed, read my Bible. I feel like I was a good dad today. I was engaged. I wasn't lazy. I, you know, last night I rubbed my wife's feet, which I thought, hey, that's that's some points, right? Um, Which, by the way, she was at the fair all day walking and her feet hurt and it was her poor selfless husband that, you know, made her feel better. Um, So some days I feel like I knock it out of the park, right? But then there's some days I, I go to bed and it's like, well, we'll get him tomorrow. Because I didn't do very well today. Like, I, I feel like I failed all day long. I made terrible choices. I was mean and, and grumpy and lazy and selfish from beginning to end. So some days we make all the wrong choices. So what do we do on those days when we make the wrong choices? Because for me, at least, it happens a lot. Maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think that I am. Those poor choices are when we choose the road that God didn't have for us. It's when we do the thou shalt nots that God has littered um, the, the scriptures with. And the Bible calls those moments when we choose the opposite of God's will for us. He, the Bible calls those things sin. And sin is not a very popular topic. It's not a, a fun word to talk about, especially from a biblical perspective. And uh, sin is still every now and then I'll see it pop up in mentioned in popular culture, not very often, but even then it's more of mistake, you know, you, you tried and you didn't quite make it all the way. Um, but when you look at a biblical perspective, sin is handled quite harshly from God's perspective. God has a very no-nonsense view of sin in Scripture. Um, he's very hardcore about sin and those who commit it. In fact, the Bible straight up says that God hates sin. Now, there's not a ton of things that the Bible says God hates, okay, but sin is one of them. In fact, there's a list of like, I think, seven things in Proverbs that said God hates these things, and it's, you know, certain things like 
arrogance, lying, injustice, and so on and so forth. And so you look at his hatred of sin in Scripture, and you will not have to go far to find that when God meets our wrong choices, God meets sin with justice and punishment. Uh, for instance, um, Noah, the story of Noah and the flood, um, is the story of God punishing Everyone that's not Noah and his family. You see, we, we all think about Noah and getting the animals marching two by two on the ark. You know, you picture two giraffes and two lions. Everyone's walking all peacefully. Um, one time I saw, it was a joke. It was a joke, but I, and I, I can't find it again. I've tried, but I found, I don't know if it was a comic or a book that somebody put together. I can't remember. It's been so long. But it was Accurate Children's Bible is what it was. And so they drew everything in the style of a normal children's Bible, but they added in the parts of the stories that we normally edit. So picture the story of Noah, like half of what you normally see in a children's Bible, plus the end of Titanic. Okay? It was Noah, the ark, and then people floating in the water. Like, and you read that, it's like, see, we edit that part out, don't we? We think it's nice and sweet, and, but you realize the story of Noah is one of the most catastrophic losses of life in the entire Bible. Okay? And God was so sick of the sin of mankind that it says he flooded the world to rid the world of them. Um, you go into uh, the next book of the Bible, which is Exodus. And um, the people of Israel are enslaved by the Egyptians, and God's going to free the Egyptians. But Pharaoh's so hard-hearted, and he says, no, they're going to be my slaves. And in fact, every time you try to free them, I'm going to make it worse for them. And so God finally starts handing out these curses, and it gets to the point where the last curse is the firstborn in all of Egypt dies for the stubborn sin of the Pharaoh. And then you move into the Israelites, and they get freed from Egypt, and they go out, and they start walking in the desert, and God says, we're going to take you to the promised land. And then they kind of start doubting God and start griping at God, mainly because they didn't think he was giving them enough uh, quality food. They're whining because they're not getting steak for dinner, and God's like, I just freed you from slavery, but thanks for the whining. And so God says, I'm sick of that. I'm sick of your whining. And he says, okay, you guys that just got out of Egypt, I'm going to make you walk in circles for 40 years until you're all dead, and I'll take your kids into the land, and hopefully they'll be more grateful. And so God lets his people die and never see the promise that he made to them because of their sin. And then once their kids grow up and they're all dead, God leads their kids into the promised land, and God uses the people of Israel as an instrument of justice and wrath against the sin of the people that lived in that promised land. And they wiped out all kinds of people. And we get to these stories in the Bible where God is showing his justice and his wrath towards sin, and we just kind of like, I don't love this part of the Bible. I don't like talking about this part of the Bible. A lot of people want to edit out this part of the Bible. And some people will even go as far as to say, well, that's Old Testament God. And something happened between Old Testament and New Testament, and God chilled out a whole lot between Old Testament and New Testament, right? Uh, my brother is 11 years older than me, and he always gripes that we didn't have the same dad because somewhere along the way, dad got too tired to discipline me the way dad disciplined him. And that my, my brother's always harping, well, I mowed the yard every week like clockwork, and all you had to do was push the edges, you know, push mow the edges. And, you know, I could have never got away with saying stuff like that to my dad. Or, you know, you said, yeah, I'll get to it in a minute. If I didn't do it right when he said it, I got in trouble. And so I've always my whole life gotten this, you got worn out, Dad, okay? Which my response was, who wore him out? Whose fault is that, you know? And uh, 
And so some people act like something like that happened to God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He chilled out, got on Prozac or something, because New Testament God is all nice and fluffy, and it's love and unicorns and rainbows. But that's not true either. If you go into uh, the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 5, as the church is just getting started, okay? God is just starting the first church and saying, hey, we're going to be a new set-apart people. We're saved by Jesus. We're going to have the Holy Spirit that gives us the power and the strength to actually not live the sinful lives of our past anymore. We got something new going on here, and it's going to be better. There's a couple that comes before the apostles, and, and they lied about the offerings they were bringing. They said they were bringing everything they had, and they weren't. And that's not the issue. The issue was they lied, and they lied for no reason. Okay? They could have just said, hey, we, we're keeping some for us. Here's some for the church, and carried on. But they lied to make themselves look more holy and look better. And the apostles basically say, no, we're not having any of that. And God strikes those, that couple dead right there. Not they didn't get sick, not tomorrow you're going to die, but one second they're dead, or they're alive, and the next second they're dead. It's just boom, alive, dead. And that was to show, hey, we got something new here, and we are not going to be the old people that we were in the past. So God, handing out wrath, handing out justice for sin, you find it from cover to cover through the Bible. And it's not pleasant to read. It's not great. In fact, but the, but the full Bible is full of stories of how God takes sin very seriously. You know, it's not a, a laughing matter. It's not something that's funny to joke about, but that God takes our sin, my sin, your sin, very, very seriously. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is what? death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the reward, he says, is eternal life, and we can kind of safely assume that that means that the death he's talking about is also eternal, which is eternal suffering in hell for our sin. That sin is somehow a crime, and that we've committed crimes by our sin, that we deserve death in hell forever. And so it's basically a place of torment, it's a destination for people who die while their life is still ruled by sin. And God is the one that created that place, and he's the one that hands out judgment for sin. And again, the idea that God punishes people, the idea that sin is real, and that there are consequences for our sin that are not great, and the fact that uh, there's something that God gets mad about, the Bible calls it God's wrath. You know, we don't want to talk about that. And we want to actually pretend like it's not really even in the Bible. It's so unpleasant and it makes us so uncomfortable to talk about this idea that there's punishment and sin. In fact, if you want to ruin any family get-together, any Christmas party, any Thanksgiving dinner, okay, just pick up your old eggnog and say, how about the fact that there were probably a lot of people floating in the water outside the ark? And just take a nice slow sip and just watch everybody's faces like, what is, what are, what's happening here? What are they doing to the, the nice, happy holiday conversation? That'll ruin it because this topic is so awkward. In fact, I can tell by some of the faces that I'm looking at right now that you don't even like that I'm talking about it. But yet, if we're going to open scripture, we can't deny that that stuff is in there, that wrath and punishment for sin. And as much as we want God to be a God of love and peace, there is also the side of God where God is a God of justice and a God of wrath toward all things evil. And whereas repentant sinners are met with grace, unrepentant sinners, it says, are always met with wrath for their sins. Romans chapter 1, verses 18. This is in, again, New Testament. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So if you're going to get your picture of God from the Bible, wrath is an unavoidable topic. And we don't really want to face it. We don't really want to deal with it. Um, We don't want to think about the fact that maybe we deserve God's wrath, that maybe we're the ones who are guilty, that maybe God's anger could be on us, because we don't want to think about that stuff. We don't want to think that maybe God's mad at me, you know, because we kind of have this I'm not so bad mindset. You know, we come towards uh, the idea of sin, and we think, well, compared to that guy or that person over there, I'm not so bad. I wasn't pointing at anyone specifically, by the way. That was just for the sake of the illustration, just so I don't get a mean card or anything. Um, but but that's, but that's that we don't want to think that I'm so bad. God is angry at somebody else's sin. My sins aren't so bad, and we kind of create this working scale of sin, and there's th- sins that are real bad and sins that aren't real bad, and we put all of our sins on the not real bad side. Yeah, I told a little lie. Yeah, maybe you didn't write everything down on my tax form, and yeah, I did a few things here and a few things there, and I said that mean thing to that guy, and uh, I you know, maybe gave the finger to somebody as I was pulling out of the church parking lot, but they deserved it because they cut me off and they weren't paying attention. And so I did some things, yeah, but I didn't murder anybody. I didn't, I'm not a, a rapist. I'm not, I'm not, you know, and we got this whole list of things that are terrible. And I'm not that. I'm not so bad because I didn't do those things. But you see, that's not how God views sin. That's not how God views righteousness and unrighteousness. It's not a, a scale of, of slide, a sliding scale. It's not um, a thousand shades of gray. When it comes to how God views us as righteous or unrighteous, it's black and white. We are either perfectly righteous or we are unrighteous. Either we've, either we've kept all of God's law or we are unrighteous. Um, I've, I've used this before. This is my favorite way to, to kind of illustrate this fact, and it's gross, and I'll just say that up front. But let's imagine that it's your birthday and somebody gets for you a cookie cake, because cookie cake is delicious. And not even a cookie cake. Let's say it's one of those double-layered cookie cakes, you know, where it's a, a cookie the size of a pizza, and then icing, a nice, generous, thick layer of icing that has no business being in any dessert, you know, that kind of icing. And then another huge pizza-sized cookie on top, right? And it's a chocolate chip cookie. And let's say they, they sliced it all up, and they're handing out the party, and then by... But as they're doing that, they're saying, hey, just so you know, while I was making this cookie cake, I actually have a pet rabbit. And it was up on the counter while I was making it. And at one point, the rabbit made one of those little jelly beans, and it rolled into the bowl while I was stirring it up. And, and you know, uh, it, w- it, w- it mixed in so fast, I couldn't catch it. And I thought, you know what, it's only one, and there's all these chocolate chips. So, so yeah, there might be a little rabbit excrement in there, but you know what, Mo- but, but you won't even notice it, you'll just think it's a chocolate chip, and with all that icing, you won't even taste it, so I don't, and, and besides, look at all the pieces we cut this cake up into, the chances that it's in yours is no big deal. How many of you still going to eat that cookie cake? Yeah, yeah, D- don't be ashamed of that, cookie cake's really good, okay, don't be ashamed of that one bit, it's delicious. Um, but most of us are going to steer clear of the cookie cake, you know. Why? They say, but it's only one little spot. That's okay. It's okay. One spot ruins the whole thing, right? As dumb as that is, as gross as that illustration is, that's how God views his law. It's either you're all good or you're not. You've kept it all or you haven't, and we haven't. We've lied, we've cheated, we've been rude, we've been selfish, we've let our anger control us, we've done a ton of things that are horrible. I always say this, if we could somehow magically project all of our worst 
thoughts and moments onto these screens behind me, we would run out of here in terror because we would be so embarrassed that people would know how bad we really are on the inside. And so when it comes to this idea of God's wrath, as much as we want to convince ourselves that we are just fine, we are not just fine. And sometimes we'll even go to the extent of saying, well, God's the one who's out of line. God just needs to chill out. This isn't like the 1800s anymore. Everybody's morality's a little looser these days, and God just needs to calm down. He needs to not take it so seriously. And we try to say that, that God's the, the, the mean one here, and we're just kind of the innocent bystanders who, who God has taken out his frustration on. But when you look at, again, how Scripture lays out what sin is and what sin isn't, have you ever thought about how, how horrible the worst of us is? Have you ever thought about how you've hurt people? I mean, some of you don't talk to people anymore because something you said in a moment of anger, and you regret it to this day, but you can't unsay it, can you? Some of you have told a lie that burned you at, with your family or some friends, and you can't unlie that lie. You could apologize and try to make it better and try to smooth it over, but some things you just can't put back in. Uh, somebody used to say, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube once it's out, right? And that's how sin is. It comes out, and it's evil, and it hurts people, and God detests that stuff. And so when you look at Scripture, it actually says God's not the hostile one. We are. When we, when we unleash sin, when we unleash our selfishness, that's what's hostile. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, meaning selfishness, what I want to do, what I crave to do, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Colossians 1.21 says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Okay, sin makes us the hostile ones. And James chapter 4 verse 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. As much as we want to paint God as the bad guy, we can't deny that that's not what Scripture says. It says that we are the ones who are hostile. We are the ones who are acting as the bad guys and the enemies of God. And so the question now becomes this, okay? Because we started out, we have a choice. Last week I said you need to make the right choices. So what if we don't? What happens if we don't? If we don't, it's bad. That's what we've covered so far. If we make the wrong choices, if we sin and do selfish things, it's bad. We get justice, we get wrath, we get death. Okay? So uh, let's just pray and you guys can go on about your week and car carry on, right? Wouldn't that be like the most depressing way to end a sermon, right? No, but, but the way you get to the good news sometimes is you got to go through the bad news because the bad news makes the good news so much sweeter. And so let's ask this question then. How do we make amends with God and avoid his wrath? Because as much as my selfishness makes me sin, my selfishness also makes me think, well, how do I do bad things and then maybe not suffer for it? <laughs> like, how, do, how do I get away with some of the things I've done? Because I, I know the things I've done. How do I get away with it? And that's not exactly how I, I say it, but how do I make things right with God? How do I avoid the consequences of my sin? How do I avoid his wrath? And the answer is five letters, and it's simple, and it's the Sunday school answer that you would expect me to say, but the answer is Jesus. Because we can't undo what we've done. The toothpaste is out of the tube. Sin is a crime in God's eyes, 
and crimes always deserve a punishment. But that's where Jesus enters into our story. That's where Jesus enters into the situation. He enters into our hopelessness, our sin, our evil, and he offers a way out for us. Romans chapter 3, we'll start at the tail end of verse 22. It says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, distinction means there's not really bad people and kind of bad people and barely bad people. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard that he has set for us. But as much as we have fallen short, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Hang on to that word propitiation. We'll talk about that in just a second. 1 John chapter 4 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Okay, we had death. Jesus came so that we might live. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. You see, we try to say, we're the cool ones, God's the grumpy one. No, it's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, not all translations of the Bible have the word propitiation in them. Uh, we switched to the ESV last year, and uh, early, I think it was last year, and um, and it's got this word propitiation in there. And I, I like the word, um, but I don't know if we all know what that word means. Um, it's not a word we use in everyday conversation. In fact, I remember specifically the last time I used propitiation in a normal conversation with a human being, and it was uh, with Brian Fox, who's the pastor of the Baptist Church one day, because propitiation is the kind of word that can only pop up in a conversation between two ministers. Okay? Um, but here's what propitiation means. Propitiation is an offering that turns away wrath. It's an offering that turns away wrath. That means like if you go into the Old Testament, you will see the sacrificial system that the ancient Israelites used where they would commit a sin and then they would make an offering. They would sacrifice an animal for their sin. And the animal's blood would, in a sense, appease the wrath of God that they had earned on themselves through their sin. What we learn in the New Testament is that Jesus is now our propitiation. Jesus is now that offering. That he came into the world. He lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every way that you were tempted. He, he felt anger and wanted to express it all the ways that you express anger. He wanted to lose control all the ways that you've been tempted to lose control. And every single time he resisted temptation and he made the right choice to follow the Heavenly Father and do God's will. He lived a 100% righteous perfect life. He had no sin, no wrath on his shoulders. And then he went to a cross and he was murdered brutally. And in that moment, he took my sin, your sin, the wrath that I had earned, the wrath that you had earned, and God poured that wrath onto Jesus, even though he did not deserve it. And in that moment, he became the perfect sacrifice, one time for all of humanity. He took away the penalty for sin, on himself as our sacrifice. He was our propitiation. And he did this extraordinary act of kindness out of the love that he has for each and every one of us. Despite the fact that you were rebellious and I was rebellious and I've ignored God and you've ignored God, Jesus and, and God the Father, they still loved us enough in our worst moments, in our terrible moments, to come down and save us when we could not save ourselves. And then after Jesus died and took away the penalty for our sin, three days later he came back to life. 
And when he resurrected, which is what we celebrate every year on Easter, and we get excited about it every year on Easter, when he came back to life from the grave, he unleashed the power of God on humanity so that our lives could then be opened up not to the death that we deserve, but to the life that God has for us in Christ so that we could be not just freed from the penalty of our sin, and the wrath of God, but that we could actually move from that old sinful life to a brand new life in Christ and actually live in a better way. And so all of that means is that despite the fact that we were rebellious, God loved us. And because Christ was our propitiation, an offering to turn away the wrath of God, and because he rose from the grave, we can have eternal life rather than eternal death. And we call that salvation. That's the salvation of God, that we could have our sins forgiven, move from death into life. And salvation is when Christ takes away our punishment for our sins, and he gives us the power to actually walk away from sin and live in perfection like him. Now, to receive salvation, the verse we looked at in Romans, let me go back a few here. It said we receive this by faith. It's received by faith. It's not received by us doing the right thing, by us making the right choices. It's not received through us praying any necessarily magic prayers or going through any particular steps. It is received the moment when we accept the fact that we are sinners, that we are a mess, that we need help. Because only, and that's why I talked about all that nasty stuff earlier, by the way. All that stuff, cookie cakes and all, that's the reason I talked about that was because we have to come to the point where we realize I'm a sinner. And if I'm a sinner, that's a really bad thing between me and God. That, that means I am in trouble with my Heavenly Father. Because only once you realize your sinfulness can you pray, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I am a sinner, and there is nothing I can do to make it right with you. That is why Jesus came and did the work for me. Jesus lived the righteous life that I could not. And he died to take away my sin. And then you can say, dear Lord, I believe and I trust that his work on the cross is enough to take away my sin and bring me eternal life. Faith is shifting your trust that you can handle life to trusting that Jesus is the one who earns your salvation. It's nothing you do. It's not church attendance. It's not cleaning up your language. It's not keeping that middle finger down when you want to stick it up. It's none of those things. Salvation comes when you put your hope and your faith and your trust for your eternal life into the hands of Jesus. And there's a couple of things that we do here to kind of constantly draw our attention to this whole salvation thing. Um, one of them we did already today, which is communion. Okay, communion. And the other one is baptism. Um, and communion and baptism kind of celebrate that two-sided coin of salvation. Communion, we remember the death and the sacrifice of Jesus. We remember that our sin has a, a heavy, heavy price, and that price is that death is the punishment for our sin, and Jesus took that punishment. And, <coughs> excuse me, and the cracker represents his body that was beat up and broken for us, and the juice represents his blood that had to be poured out so that we could have our sin taken away. And it reminds us not only the size and the weight of sin, but it reminds us of the goodness of God. Because, you know, I think of the people in my life that I love, and you ask me, would you die for them? Absolutely. But there are a ton of people in this world that you don't love. And there's a lot of people that, and I know there's somebody probably who's on your list. Maybe you, you know them. It's somebody that, you know, got you, hurt you in your past or something. Or maybe it's somebody that um, you don't know. Then you just have to watch them on the news or on TV. And you just think, oh, that person again. But 
What if it's that person? Like, I can die for my kids. I'd die for my wife. I'd die for my parents. I'd die for my brother and sister. But what about that person that I really don't care for at all, that person that drives me nuts? Would you die for them? And yet Jesus died for the worst of you, the worst in you, you at your worst. And he died for me at my worst. And by the way, I say you, I mean me. I, this isn't some preacher talking to you horrible, rotten sinners. I am in the same boat with everybody else. We are all horrible, rotten sinners. So I hope that makes you feel better uh, right there, right? But, but, that, but that's what we take communion to, remember the goodness of Jesus' love for you and for me. And the second thing, the second ritual that we partake in is baptism. And in baptism, we are devoting ourselves to the new life that Christ affords us. And in baptism, we, are, we go under the water. As if, as Jesus died and was buried, our old life, apart from Jesus, dies. And when we come out of the water, we are devoting ourselves to a new life with Jesus. Saying, that old me is gone, and because of Jesus, there's a new me that's going to walk forward from this day onward. And so, I know most of the sermon was dreary and horrible, but unless we cover that bad news stuff, unless you get to the dark part, it's hard to see the light. And every one of us is a sinner, and many of us in this room have received that salvation. And that doesn't mean we're not sinners. It just means that now we trust in Jesus for our salvation, and that because of what he did, we can try a new life and try to be better, and we're not always nailing it. Okay? We are definitely not always nailing it out of the park, but that's okay because my salvation doesn't depend on me being good. It depends on what Jesus, he was good for me. And so a lot of us in this room, we have that salvation, but maybe you're here and you don't. And if you don't, I want you to know that that salvation of Jesus, it is available for you today by faith. It comes into your life by believing and trusting in Jesus And if you are here today and you would like to receive that salvation, I'm going to be in the back of the room after I get off this stage. I'll go take off my microphone, and then I'll come back, and I'll stand in in the back of the room. I would love to talk with you. I would love to pray with you. Maybe you don't want to stand up and walk to the back in the service. I understand that um, because, you know, you don't want to be the singled out person. I get that. I've been there. Um, If that's the case, if the service ends and you find yourself still standing where you are, Grab me after the service. Call me sometime this week if you want to know my email address so you can email me about it. i got business cards. I'll give you business cards. It's got all my information on it, okay? Um, You can, even if, whatever you need to do, I want to talk with you about this because the salvation that comes in Christ, it is not just life-changing, it is eternity-changing. And I want to help anybody that I can come to that saving relationship in Jesus because, unfortunately, we are all a mess. We are all struggling. We've all made the bad choices, but in Christ, we can be made new. In Christ, the wrath of God comes off our shoulders, and we can have a fresh start with our Heavenly Father, a new life that is eternal and better and in the footsteps of Jesus. So if you want to talk about salvation, if you want to talk about even if you're starting in on this journey and you're thinking about it and you just want to have some questions answered, please, please come talk to me. I don't bite. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the salvation that comes in Jesus. I am, I don't love talking about the sinful part of it, but it's hard to recognize the beauty of what Jesus did for us if we don't talk about the the ugliness of what we have done to you. Our creator who made us to know joy and love, and we chose the opposite. And we have brought evil into this world. We have brought disgusting things into this world. Many of us in this room, we have had pasts that 
that if somebody looked at us today, they wouldn't even have a clue that that's who we used to be. And many of us credit that change to you because you gave us a new life and you gave us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to give us strength and power to live a totally different life than what we had been before. But many of us probably, maybe we don't know you. Maybe there's someone here, Father, who doesn't have a relationship with you, who hasn't accepted the salvation that Jesus died to bring. And I just pray, Father, that they would see their need for it today, that they would see the open door, the, the, the ready, loving arms that you extend toward them. You are not receiving them in anger. You are not receiving them in wrath. You are not receiving them to send them to death in hell, but you are receiving them as a parent receives a kid who's gone off the rails for a while and wants to come back and wants to be loved and wants to get their life straightened out. You receive us with open arms of joy and love as our gracious Heavenly Father who always wants the best for us. So thank you that Jesus took our sin on His shoulders so that we could be forgiven and redeemed back into your good graces and back into your family. Thank you, Father, for the salvation that comes only in Jesus. Thank you that we get to take communion and remember the power of Jesus' work for us every week. Thank you for baptism, that we have a physical representation of an old life dying away and a new life being joined with you. Thank you, Father, for all you do. May we see the hope and salvation today. We pray all this in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.